Acts chapter 20, and we will be in verses 17 through 16. My kids have been blessed to have a couple visits from grandparents lately, um, as grandma's here in town, and then uh, Mimi and Papa have been in town, and then uh, Shelby's grandparents were in town a couple weeks ago, and I've been reminded watching our kids that sometimes saying goodbye can be really hard, can it? It's really hard when you're a kid because you don't understand that, you know, goodbye is more of a see you later, especially the grandparents, they find their way out here. I found that grandparents make their way into town a little more often when they've got grandkids in the mix, you know? But saying goodbye is even harder when you have to say goodbye to somebody and you're not entirely sure what their future may hold. That was how George Washington must have felt. If you know history, he declined the country's popular cry for him to run for a third term for president. I mean, this is a guy who was the father of our nation, really. He helped build this thing, and he was the first president in office for two different terms. He was a, a lead general in the battle of the Revolution, battles of the Revolutionary War. And as he was heading towards the end of his second term, he faced two realities. He understood that he wanted everything in him to be there and lead the nation and see it to continue to prosper. But he also knew he, he shouldn't do that. He was so anti-monarchy uh, he didn't want there to be some sort of quasi-monarchy with a president being there for 12 years. But he also recognized that while he was leaving office, the nation was far from stable. Now you could imagine eight years into having a nation, you're probably not really stable at that point. And that's why you could go read it. It's, it's quite a fascinating read. George Washington totally out of the blue, published a farewell letter in a local newspaper that was subsequently circulated around the country. And I took time to read it. I linked it on a Facebook post if you're interested in finding that or you could Google it. But as I read it, I couldn't help but think that this guy's words could be circulated in a newspaper in 2023 and it would probably be a good thing. He wrote, and he warned the country against a spirit of disunity between the East and the West, between the North and the South. He tried to assure all of those different parties and interests that the government was serving each of those regions fairly. He warned against the, against the spirit of parties and factions. George Washington was famously against a two-party system. He said that those parties and those factions are entirely natural to our passions, but left unchecked could lead to the very unraveling of the nation. He warned a young nation against trying to model their policies and government after foreign nations in Europe. Because, he argued, those nations have unique concerns and histories that have formed their governments and he did all of that, and it's a very long letter, with the spirit of concern for the future of the nation. But while he was concerned for the nation, and he recognized that there was danger ahead, 
you read that letter and you realize that with all of those things considered, George Washington recognized that it was somebody else's time to take up the mantle of leadership. I think that Paul's farewell address in our passage tonight is governed by much of the same tone and concerns as George Washington's. But I think we'd all agree tonight that there's something far more significant at stake when Paul is addressing these pastors than even the future of a nation itself. Because Paul in Acts 20 verses 17 through 38 isn't addressing nation. As the verses tell us later on, in verse number, I believe 28 or 29, Paul's addressing the church of God, which God purchased with his own blood in verse number 28. If you've been with us, you know, you may not recognize, Paul's been in Ephesus for three years. That's a good bit of time. That's almost a presidential term. But he knew that his time to leave had come. And if we, you remember last week, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And so he's so set on getting to Jerusalem that Paul didn't even stop off in Ephesus. We're gonna read in a moment. He met the elders of that church in Ephesus at a place called Miletus. And because he was so busy, he wanted them to meet him there. That way, maybe he wouldn't encounter the persecution in Ephesus and he wouldn't have to spend as much time go traveling into the mainland. And he gives them this farewell address in Acts 20. If I remember right, in the whole book of Acts, this is the only sermon of Paul's that is directed toward Christians. And what you're gonna find as we read tonight is that we learn something from this sermon of Paul's own example. Because really his, his sermon breaks down into three parts tonight. We're gonna learn from an example that we ought to follow. We're gonna be given commands to obey in verses 28 through 31. And then Paul's gonna end his sermon with some encouragement to remember. So an example to follow, commands to obey, and encouragement to remember. I think it'd be good for us to just read the whole thing together, okay? So let's look at Acts 20, starting at verse number 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth, witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. I love verse 24. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry 
which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. I told you that the passage breaks down in three parts. In verses 18 through 27, there's an example to follow. In verses 28 through 31, there are commands to obey. And in verses 32 through 35, there is encouragement to remember. And so Paul starts off in verses 18 through 27 with his example. And he basically makes this argument in verses 18 through 27 that though Paul was leaving Ephesus, he was leaving with a clear conscience because he had not held back any of God's words from them. Verse 18, he's pretty clear. He points to himself as the example for these, these pastors of this church. And he says, I want you to think about my ministry to you as a pattern for your future ministry to others. And he really breaks down his example into two parts. He gives us two different things to think about with his own example. And in verses 19 through 24, he, he encourages us to think about his example of a willingness to endure the cost of ministry. Look at verse 19. He tells us that his ministry there in Ephesus had come at a cost. He says, I had I served the Lord with all humility of mind. Now look at this. Many tears. That's a cost. Many temptations. He's not talking about sin, sinful temptations. He's saying it got so bad, I could have been tempted to give up on the whole thing because there's these people in verse 19 who are trying to kill me, the Jews. 
Verses 22 through 23, he reminds them that he's not leaving Ephesus because he's trying to get away from the cost of ministry. He's leaving Ephesus to go to a ministry that's probably going to cost him more. And we're going to talk about that in our next installment of the series as Paul goes to Jerusalem, that the only thing that was promised him there was greater affliction. Look at verse 22 of chapter number 20. He says, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem. He says, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except in verse 23, that there's going to be bonds and afflictions that will abide with me. So here's Paul. And in Ephesus, his ministry came with a cost. And in Jerusalem, his ministry is going to come with even more of a cost. Now you got to ask the question, why would Paul do this? I mean, is this guy just trying to make his life harder? Ministry didn't pay him well. I mean, he worked another job. There's other reasons, cultural reasons he did that. It didn't make his life easier. And frankly, especially in Jerusalem, the people he went there to minister to didn't want him there. Here's what Paul reveals to us in this first section. He shows us that he was willing to endure ministry's cost because he was most concerned about finishing his course. After reflecting on the cost of ministry, Paul says in verse number 24, the reason why he was willing to endure the cost, it was for this reason. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry. Paul says, you know why I'm gonna endure this cost and put up with these people who don't even want my ministry and why I stayed here and grinded it out in Ephesus for three years, even when people tried to kill me at multiple junctures, it's because I was more concerned with finishing my course than I was with escaping the cost. I wonder if Paul, throughout his years in Ephesus, was reflecting on what the author of Hebrews would later write about this idea of enduring the cost. When the author of Hebrews says, I believe in chapter number 12, he exhorts the Christians, the Jewish Christians, to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Here's what Paul's leaving this example to us tonight, church. You may not be a pastor, and none of us are apostles, but here's the dead level truth. You cannot finish your course of ministry unless you're willing to endure the cost of ministry. Your ministry may not be to pastor, but I would imagine that all of us have a ministry that we are tempted to shrink back from. The word in our translation is the word shun. I'm trying to find it. He says, I've shunned not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And I think that for all of us, there are things in our life that we might be tempted to shrink back from, to, to withdraw from, to retreat like soldiers losing in a battle because maybe the cost is too high. I wrote down some thoughts here. 
Godly motherhood and fatherhood comes with a cost. Years of prayers and investment. I think of my mom. And I didn't always return her cost with kindness. You know, the faithful Christian life, even if you're not a parent, is full of costs. Didn't Jesus tell us that? He, he said, you know, don't even bother following me if you're not willing to carry a cross with you. Because there's going to be some costs. There's going to be sacrifices. There's going to be time. There's going to be finances. There's going to be heartaches. There's going to be betrayals. You can't minister to people, church family, if you're not willing to endure a cost. You can't minister without a cost. And if we want to endure um, and finish our course of ministry and meet our Savior with a reputation of faithfulness, we've got to stick it out and endure the cost. We've got to be able to say like Paul did, none of these things move me. I don't even count my own life, dear, unto myself. Oh, can I just encourage you by Paul's example tonight? Don't trade in the high prize of finishing your course because the cost seems a little too high. Paul's example encourages us in a second way. In verses 25 through 27, Paul shows us that he held nothing back from God's word that his people needed to hear. He says some very stunning statements here that, that should be an example that convicts us all. Look at verse 27. I hope I can say this as a pastor. I have, shunned not, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. There's the verse I was searching for earlier. Verse number 20. I have kept back nothing that was profitable from you. Paul is saying that when I'm leaving you, I've been here only three years, but I can leave you guilt-free because I know that in my time there, he says, I, I preached you night and day. Hey, I don't know, maybe that's like a morning and an evening service. I don't know, I'm just joking. But he says, I've preached to you night and day with tears, warning you, I've, I haven't held back a single thing from you. I've preached the whole counsel of God. What is he talking about there? I don't know if he, I mean, the canon of scripture wasn't complete, so I don't think he's thinking Genesis to Revelation, but I think he's saying that all of God's plans, all of God's counsel, all of God's doctrine, I've preached that to you. And so at the end of the day, it's up to you to live it. I've preached it. I haven't held back something that you need. And I think Paul's words remind us tonight, church, that if Paul was so focused on declaring the whole counsel of God, you know what that teaches us? That you and I need all that God has said. As a Christian, your desire should be to want to hear and understand all of the counsel of God. I want so badly for God to put in your souls, church, a hunger for all that God has to say. You recognize tonight that sometimes the things that you need to hear from God's counsel are not the things you like to hear. You know, every Christian has their favorite thing, that they're like the rah-rah moment. I hope the pastor preaches on that. Normally, it's when we're doing good in that area, right? Yeah, pastor, you get that because it doesn't convict me, you know? We all love what the Bible says about this subject or this subject. But you know, friend, 
We don't just need the parts of the Bible that make us feel good about ourselves. We need all of it. We need all of it. We need the Old Testament. That's why we're starting in Genesis. We need the New Testament. We need the conviction. We need the encouragement. We need the doctrine. We need the practical. We need the whole counsel of God. And sometimes that might mean that when you come, and and I'm trying as a pastor to live up to this example, you're going to hear some things in this church you may not like to hear. I hope they line up with the Bible. I mean, if they don't, then I probably shouldn't be doing this. But you may not like it. I know this, that my wife is an excellent cook. And there's a couple reasons why I don't make the menu for the week. My wife does that every Sunday night. She does the Walmart pickup order, creates what we're going to, figures out what we're going to eat throughout the week. There's a couple reasons I don't make that menu. Number one, it would never get done. (laughs) Uh, That's not my area. Uh, You know it's bad when my mom literally said to me, I think at age eight, you better find a wife who can cook. You're just not really cut out for this. I tried, y'all. I tried. I had a little cookbook. Remember my little cookbook? Grilled cheese. Well, that's about all I could make, you know? Grilled cheese, peanut butter and jelly. That's, that's one reason I don't do it. You know the other reason I don't make the menu at our house? Because if I made the menu, there would be nothing healthy on there. But somehow, in front of me at lunchtime, twice this week was a salad. I mean, a salad. Why? Because the things that I want aren't always the things that I need. I'm reminded of what the proverb says. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Satan would love nothing more for you than to despise the spiritual diet of the word you receive and cheat yourself out of spiritual profit. And I think Paul's words exhort us this way, because I know, I, know, I know I'm not preaching to pastors here like Paul was, but I want you to think about this. The people God has put in your ministry circle, your kids, your family, your fellow church members, lost coworkers, or lost associates you have, think about this. What if God uprooted you from them tomorrow? I wonder if like Paul, you could say that you have said to them all that God wanted you to say. I wonder if you could say that you testified in verse 21 of the gospel of grace, of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is, is if you can't say that, you can't live with the same guilt-free conscience Paul left Ephesus with. We've got work to do, some of us, don't we? We've got some Counsel of God, we need to declare. Some things we need to share with some people. If God's put it on our heart and if they need the gospel, it doesn't matter if God put it on your heart. You need to share it because they need to hear it. Paul had finished his courses in Ephesus and he says, my example points you to the fact that you should be willing to endure the cost of ministry so you can finish the course of ministry. And he says, my example points you to the fact that you should not hold back anything from God's word that those people need to hear. But then Paul gives us two commands to obey in verses 28 
through 31. And I want you to read the context of these commands to these pastors. You know, it's interesting to me. Paul knew things were gonna get worse when he left and he still left. He was that convinced. Look at verse 29 through 31. He tells them what's about to happen. He says, I know this. He He ain't guessing. I know this. After my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own selves shall men arise. Who are these wolves? Well, they're people who are speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul says, I know that after I leave, false teachers will enter into the church False teachers will arise from within it. And so Paul gives them two commands. And what's interesting to me about these two commands is they're not really what you and I would draw up as a battle plan for false doctrine in the church. They're certainly not what we would draw up for a pastor's job description. But he gives these commands as this pastoral job description in verse 28. Look at the first one, just a couple words. Here's the first command. Paul says, take care of your own spiritual life. Verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves. Grievous wolves are coming in. And here's Paul's solution. Take care of your own spiritual life. Well, that doesn't really seem like what I would brainstorm in a false doctrine battle plan. I don't know about you. Why does Paul say this to these pastors? Because pastors aren't qualified to pastor unless they first live out the faith they're supposed to preach, 1 Timothy 3. And like Paul, it'd be really hard to declare the whole counsel of God if you're not endeavoring to live the whole counsel of God. But as a church member, I want you to consider this, how this applies to you. If for the pastor, it's of utmost priority for him to to prioritize his own personal spiritual development, Paul's making the argument for the strength of the church. How much more should that be applicable to all of us? Y'all, you want this church to stand for 75 more years? Read your Bible tomorrow. That's what Paul's saying. Take heed to yourself. A healthy church is built on people who walk with Jesus. Take care of your own spiritual life. If he's saying this to people whose entire job would be, shortly we'll come to this, feeding the flock of God, studying and teaching the word of God, if he's saying to those people, you better take care of your own spiritual life. Hey, we all better take care of our own spiritual life. Can somebody join me in with a chorus of amens on that? We all need to figure this thing out. Because of the people who live in the word for a job need to do that, boy, all of us need that. I'll tell you right now, I, I study the word for probably about 20-ish hours of my week for the preaching. I still have a personal devotion time. I notice it when I don't have that. I feel the difference. And man, 
Can we really expect a church to stand firm against ungodliness and false gospels if we don't personally walk with Christ? The strength to stand comes from an inner strength that comes from walking with Jesus day by day by day. If you need help doing this thing, if you need practical advice, I'll do anything to make the time to sit down with you and help you with that. I've dealt with that. I've wrestled with that. Prayer, man, that's hard. Reading our Bible, man, that could be hard, but it's so, so needed. And here's the second command he gives. Take care of your own spiritual life. But then he tells these men, shepherd God's flock. Shepherd God's flock. Look at verse 28. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And here's where I get the idea of shepherding, to feed the church of God. That word feed is the verb form of shepherd. He says to shepherd the church of God. Well, what do shepherds do? Well, they feed, uh, that's, that's like one third of their job. But they care for sheep. They feed the sheep. They, they lead the sheep to the pastures where the sheep will graze. And shepherds, as 29 through 31 is gonna explain, I believe that next verb, watch, guard, that's a function of shepherding because that's what shepherds do for their sheep. They, they guard them. They make sure that wolves don't come in and spoil their investment. So here Paul is saying to these men, these plurality of men who are pastoring this church, he's saying, you've got to shepherd this church. You've got to lead it. The holy, you're an overseer. Look at verse 28. Do you see that? An overseer. That's, a, that's a, like an administrative function there. That would be the type of term in, in ancient Greek that they would give like a CEO or a, a manager. You're a manager of this flock. You've got to make some decisions. You've got to make some judgment calls. You've got to feed them the word of God. I think Paul is reflecting on Jesus's words to Peter. So this comes with some authority. This comes with some responsibility. This comes with some, some consequences if it's not done right. And so the question might be asked, who gave these men the right to do that? Who said these men should feed? Who said these men should lead? Well, Pretty simple in verse 28, the Holy Ghost did. The Holy Ghost made you overseers. Now we believe in congregationalism because we're good old Baptists, but Paul seemed to see in the act of a congregational approval of an elder, the leading of God himself. And he's quick to remind the elders that while the Holy Spirit made you an overseer, He's put you in charge of a pretty priceless treasure. He says, this flock is so expensive, God purchased it with his own blood. Doesn't that remind us of the shepherding example of Jesus? This idea of feeding and guarding and leading isn't that what we see him doing at every turn of his earthly ministry? I mean, the, Jesus at all turns is just teaching his disciples. He almost seems utterly unconcerned about the crowds. 
Because every time a crowd situation happens, he's like, it's like he turns his back to the crowds and starts teaching the 12. What's he doing? He's feeding. He's guarding them. He, in fact, he would give them very similar wording to this near the end of his ministry, warning the church about wolves and things like that. It happens in the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. And so Jesus is the perfect example of a shepherd who, who's, who's not there primarily to do a bunch of logistical things. He's there to lead the church spiritually, to feed the church the word of God. We don't have a lot of time to dive into this, but I remember uh, the, the Sunday I candidated here, I preached from verse 28 called the pastor's job description. And I think that's a, a great thought to take from verse 28 that we ought to recognize, church, that that the pastor's job primarily is this idea of shepherding and feeding. Praise God, there's room to do other things, but that's number one. So these are the two commands. Take care of your own spiritual walk and shepherd God's flock. Don't you think these guys would have felt a little overwhelmed being the follow-up act to the Apostle Paul? (laughs) Can you imagine that? I look at that wall and I'm like, oh, goodness gracious, why is my picture up there with those guys? You know, I have no business being up there. But can you imagine Robert following the Apostle Paul? (laughs) No wonder Paul ends his speech with some encouragement to remember. And as Paul hands over the care of the church, in fact, verse number 32, the word commend literally means I'm, I'm handing you over. Not my responsibility anymore. He's going to give them two encouraging truths to remember. Here's the first one. First encouraging truth Paul tells them in verse 32 is that God and his word will build you up and save you. Look at verse 32. I love verse 32. And now, brethren... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I wonder why Paul points them to the power of the word. Could it be that the word was the central thing he was concerned that they would pass on? After all, he says, my example is one who taught all of the word of God. And he says, after all, that your job is to teach them the word of God. To teach each other the word of God, as we learned about this morning, that God wants us all to speak the truth in love. Why do we speak the truth in love? Because it's only the truth that is attached to this promise. God does not attach his power in this way to anything else but his own word that can build you up and purchase your salvific inheritance. Man, what a powerful thing God has attached to his word. When you speak the word of God to one another church family, recognize that it's that word that is capable of building people up. It's that word that is capable of giving people their heavenly inheritance. Paul's reminding these people that it's not really on their shoulders at the end of the day. It's God's work that's gonna happen. 
It's God's word that's gonna do the real heavy lifting. And when faithfulness to Christ was wearing them out, and when it wears you out, when, when, when the cost of ministry is tearing you down, oh, listen, go to the word. Because when life tears you down, the word builds you up. Reminds me of that verse about David. It's almost easy to miss. When it says in the, I believe in 1 Samuel, that David encouraged himself in the Lord. You struggling? Build yourself up with the word of God. Don't disconnect from the word. Go back to it. Read it again and again and again. And then he gives him a second encouragement. He encourages them with this reminder that God, sorry, well, Christ will bless a life of selfless giving. Look at verse 33. Points to his own example again. I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. And what's this example serving? What purpose is it serving? He says, I've showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This whole sermon is dominated by the reality that if you're going to serve people like Jesus served people, it will cost you something. Here's the truth, church. Consumers don't make good disciples. Consumers don't make good servants of Christ. I've, I've watched this. I've reflected on this often with Shelby when people enter into the ministry that if you're a selfish person, ministering to people will eat you alive. And that's true not just in a vocational context, but in a church ministry context. If you want to be used by God, you have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to give. It's going to cost monetarily. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost some wounds. I can tell you this. You can't love people well unless you're willing and ready to be wounded by them. And so often what happens is that we get wounded by somebody in this church situation or this church situation. And I get it. I, I haven't gone through what, what some of you have gone through, and it can be really easy to say, done. I, I'm done with that. I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna, uh, you know what? I'll just wait. I'll, I'll see how they turn out. See, make sure they won't hurt me. Well, I wonder if it's that type of attitude. I mean, literally, by the way, Paul says, there are gonna be wolves among you. And he says, I want you to give your life to them. I want you to shepherd them and love them and care for them and feed them. But by the way, some of them will stab you in the back. Isn't that what verse 29 and 30 is saying? He's saying the people who are in, this is crazy. He says the people in your church right now are gonna rise up and speak perverse things and draw disciples after them, but you should shepherd them. 
And is it a surprise then that Paul says in that context, the fear of getting wounded by your own people, that he reminds these people that, that while it might be tempting to think, well, you know what? I'm going to get out of the giving ministry and I'm going to step into the receiving chair. I'm not going to do this elder thing anymore, Paul. When he says, isn't it Jesus who said it's more blessed to give than to receive? Can I just translate that for you in Ephesian elder language? It's more blessed to shepherd people who will stab you in the back than it is to sit on the sidelines and just listen to the preaching. It's more blessed to put money in the offering plate than it is to get a bonus. It's more blessed to put in the time for a church event than it is for the church to do something for you. And that's so countercultural, isn't it? I mean, my own generation is marked by a consumer mentality, and frankly, every generation is. But Paul reminds us, mm, Jesus blesses the giving stuff. He doesn't bless the receiving stuff. No matter what sacrifice it takes, Paul says, you'll never regret a life of sacrificially giving to God's people. I think verse 35 is a good reminder of everything that Paul has said in this sermon. His whole sermon could be summarized by the dynamic of giving or spending. He gave his own life and he was willing to give it up for the people in Jerusalem. If it meant that he could finish his course with joy, he was calling these elders to give themselves for the care of the church and he pointed them forward and reminded them that this life of sacrifice would one day be met with the blessing and the rewards of Christ himself. When you're tempted to give up and you're tempted to retreat from sacrificing for the Lord's work, church member, it's more blessed. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I want us tonight to spend some time praying to God in response to this passage. Let's think about some ways we can pray in response to this passage. It'll be on the screen.